All right, that's tough to, tough to get to work after that. Thank you for your grace in advance. In 1977, a little film called Star Wars debuted. And it was a big hit. You may have heard of it. And in fact, in 1977, with its successful debut, the Hollywood executives producing the movie very quickly green-lighted sequels to be made. Only at that point, the whole, the whole movie franchise was to be called Star Wars, the name of the first film. And so they had to rename the first film. Does anyone know the name of that first film? A New Hope, that's right. Yeah. We can talk, we can have a conversation. Craig's out. Um, yeah, it was called A New Hope because there was hope for the rebels against the evil empire. In 2008, Barack Obama won the first of his two presidential elections with an iconic poster highlighting his profile with one simple word, hope. This is not any kind of political endorsement or um, anything. I don't know what you may, who you may support, but it's simply to say that that word, that message resonated with voters at that time. Hope. The swallow, the bird, has long been a symbol in Western literature for hope. It's the first bird to arrive in the springtime. After the long cold winter, it's a harbinger of new life to come and of hope. Here's the point. As a people, we need hope. We long for hope. Hope is what gets us over the obstacles we face in life. But hope's a tricky thing, isn't it? Place a lot of hope in something. Hopes can be easily dashed. Um, we, we marry, hoping that our wedding will be perfect and that our marriage will be perfect. But we know that even the best marriages have their challenges. Isn't that true? No, oh. That's good. Um, We place our hopes on a new job or a new career to give us financial stability, or we place our hope in um, our our children growing to a new stage of life or a new age where things will be easier or better. But hopes are easily broken. Hopes can easily let us down. In Romans chapter eight, Paul writes about hope. And he writes to the church to comfort us, to encourage us, and to give us joy. And those things are rooted in our hope in God. That's a a hope that is a present reality, but it's a hope that's also looking forward to a certain definite future. But Paul is incredibly realistic in dealing with hope because he knows our current state of affairs. And he writes to give us hope in the midst of our real problems. So, Listen now to God's Word in our Scripture today from Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 28. And may God add His blessing on the reading of His Holy Word. Would you stand with me? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work within us. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in his letter to the Romans, Paul is incredibly realistic in dealing with our current state of affairs. And he writes to give us hope in the midst of our real problems, of our real brokenness, and our real struggles. And where we're going to start today is with this idea that God meets us in our weakness to give us hope. God meets us in our weakness to give us hope. Verse 23 says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. The Scriptures teach that all of creation groans for redemption, and and that includes us. We are no different. We are created beings, and so we do the exact same thing. We groan over our current state of affairs, don't we? We groan because life isn't easy. We wrestle with sin. And we want to be free of sin. And we also wrestle with the fallout of sin or the consequences of sin. We get sick. We age. Those we love die. We experience real heartache and real tragedy in this life. We suffer in all sorts of ways. And even for the most content person... There is a longing, even in them, for a desire for things to be made right. And the Bible is well aware of our suffering. An entire book of the Bible called Lamentations compiles the sorrow of the Israelites as they were sent into exile, and they didn't know if they would ever come home. And then there's Ecclesiastes, where everything under the sun is meaningless. And there's Job who deals with unspeakable loss. And there's 
the Psalms, many of which were written by David, who's on the run as he writes, and he's on the run against forces much greater than he, and many of his Psalms are a desperate plea of, please, God help me, God save me. And suffering's never an illusion in the Bible. It's never a trick of the mind or something to ignore. Suffering is real, and there's no easy answer for why we suffer. And instead of answering the why about suffering, or instead of giving us a theory about why we suffer, in the Bible, we get God himself. Come in the flesh in Jesus, the suffering Messiah. Jesus, the one who who never sinned against the Father. Jesus, the, the only person deserving of the good life, yet he suffers his whole life. He's born into poverty. As a child, his life is under threat and his family flees as exiles to another country. He grows up in a nowhere town of no reputation. In his life, Jesus goes around Judea healing anyone who will let them heal them teaching thousands of individuals the way of God all all the while without charging a cent. He sleeps in the fields and along the byways of Israel. He's constantly threatened by the religious leaders and authorities. He's mocked because of inviting notorious sinners to believe. Even his own own family, they, they don't know what to do with him. And when he's arrested... The disciples, the very disciples who had pledged their lives to him, they scatter. And he's beaten to an inch of his life. He's dragged here and there and everywhere because really no one wanted his blood on their hands. And finally, they have him hung on a cross. The most humiliating and painful torture device of his day. Jesus was what Isaiah 53 calls a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, familiar with suffering. Hebrews 5.7 says that Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Do we groan? Yes. Do we suffer? Of course. But God redeems that pain and heartache and all the griefs and sorrows, not by explaining it away, not by giving pat answers, but by showing that through His Son, He knows. And He is with us. And He has been there. Think about Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet and know that in your sorrows, Jesus walks alongside you. And he is with you with a full knowledge of what it means to suffer. In our weakness, we groan along with creation. But we are saved in the hope of the knowledge that we will be remade and redeemed body and soul by Christ alone, and this is the hope of our salvation. We, we, we don't believe in Jesus as just a good guy who said good things and did nice things. No, we believe in a Jesus 
who has set us right with the Father and who has sent His Spirit to us and who will make all things right and new. And that is the substance of our hope. And that leads us to the second main point for today, that God is with us in our weakness. And the second point is this, that godly hope is not a wish. Godly hope is not a wish, but it is a longing for a promise made by our trustworthy God that will be fulfilled. Verse 24 and 25 say this, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul explains the basic meaning of hope. He says, you don't hope for what you have. Rather, hope requires an object that that has not yet been grasped, not yet been attained. And biblical hope is, is different from our earthly hope. And I'll give you an example of how. When we hope for earthly things, we often set ourselves up for disappointment. So we hope for things that may have very little basis in reality. I may say, I'm having a party in three weeks. It's an outdoor party, and I hope it won't rain that day. But I don't know. I'm not a weather forecaster. I'm not even sure the weather forecasters know if it'll rain that day or not. Or I may say, I hope South Carolina wins the SEC this season. Football's almost here. But that may not be based on much reality either, right? It might happen, but it probably won't. Some of our hopes, are they're not based on, on much in reality. There are things, though, that we might hope on that are firmer things. I hope we have a good flight on Tuesday to La Paz. And, and most flights do make it to their destination, right? So that's based on a little firmer reality. Some don't, but most do. So that's a hope and a firmer reality. But, but our earthly hopes are very different than godly hopes, biblical hopes. Godly hope is not based on us or what we will do or not do. It's not based on other people, what they will do or not do. But it is based on a far greater reliability. It's based on a trustworthy God who is far greater than, than ourselves, far greater than anyone else. And, and we know that, that what he says he will do, he will do. And we base that upon the witness of hundreds and hundreds of people who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ and could attest um, that, that he was risen from the grave. And we base that hope upon millions and millions of people who have found faith and joy and peace in the living Savior Jesus Christ and have shared him down the ages and we, we take it even on the evidence of God becoming real to us. And as he becomes real to us, that we want more and more of him, that we want more Jesus, that we want to sing more songs to him and pray more prayers to him and be in his word more and more. And Paul characterizes Christian hope in two ways. He says Christian hope is both eager and patient. And they're almost, they're almost opposites, but not quite. So it's sort of an interesting take he has. 
And what he means is this, is that we, we desperate, we're eager. We desperately want to be redeemed. We desperately want to see Jesus and his joy and his glory. We are, we are eager for that. But we know we have to be patient because God will do everything in his right time. And so we're eager for the Lord, but we're patient. And one analogy to that would be, um, think about Thanksgiving dinner. At Thanksgiving dinner, all the different, all the turkey, all the different sides, they're prepared in the morning, they're put into the oven, and maybe by noontime, you're smelling them all, and they smell wonderful. But for many families, Thanksgiving dinner doesn't happen until 1, maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so at noon, you're hungry, and you smell that turkey and that dressing and those potatoes, and that pumpkin pie. You're eager to eat them, but you have to have patience because you know, you know that when that turkey is done just right and those potatoes are finished and the pumpkin pie is just that right shade of brown on top, you know it's going to be wonderful, and you don't want to spoil that. And so you're eager for it to be done, but you're patient because you want it to be done right. And that's, that's kind of our situation as believers, right? God gives us grace in our weakness to wait patiently. We long for what we don't quite have yet. But we know that God is doing everything in His perfect time. So we have hope. A good hope. A strong hope with the firm foundation of Jesus behind it as we wait. And in the midst of all that, we struggle. We suffer. We have problems. Catastrophes come our way. And those try to erode and try to challenge our sense of hope. So how do we get through that? When our sense of hope is challenged... Well, that's our third point for today. God provides for us in our weakness through the gift of His Holy Spirit so that we can stay strong. So when the, when the storms of life buffet us and make us question our hope and make us question the Lord, He has given us the gift of His Spirit to help us stay strong. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so what this is saying is that we are so weak that oftentimes we don't even know what to say to God. Sometimes we're just clueless about it. People have asked me before to, on a particular occasion or in a particular situation, they've said, would you write a prayer for me? Or would you come and say a prayer for, for me? And I've asked before, I've said, well, you know, I've asked why they want me to do that. And they say, Pastor, I don't know what to say. And I understand that. And I think Paul agrees with that. Do we always know what to say to God? No, we don't. I don't know if you've had this experience before of um, 
running into someone who's maybe a celebrity or maybe a um, maybe maybe you're a musician and you run into someone who's a musician you you respect or maybe it's someone in your field who's um, a, a regarded person in your field and you run into them and you have great respect for them and you'd love to speak to them and then when when that moment comes you have no idea of anything intelligent to say. It's happened to me before. Oh, why didn't I say this? I said a stupid thing. I didn't know what to say. And, and if that happens when we run into people, then it's no wonder that we have trouble sometimes knowing what to say to the God of the universe. Romans 8 acknowledges that. Romans 8 tells us that we have the Spirit given to us as a first fruits, as a down payment for our soul. And the Spirit prompts us in at least two ways. First, the Spirit inspires us as we pray to pray the things that God wills. And He guides our thoughts and our minds to the things that really matter. So that's, that's the first meaning of what Paul is saying here with the gift of the Spirit. And just as importantly, maybe more so comforting, is that the Spirit groans for us and the Spirit groans with us and He intercedes for us. He stands in the gap for us so that when we pray, when we pray, maybe our words aren't all as important as we think. When we pray, maybe sometimes we should be silent. Maybe sometimes when we pray, we should, our prayer should be, may the Spirit speak to you, Father, about all the things on my heart that I can't even express. And just as Jesus lived through suffering and relates to us through suffering, the Spirit groans with us, counsels us, comforts us, guides us, desires us to be more and more like Jesus. And the Spirit always prays according to the will of the Father. Do I always pray according to the will of the Father? Heck no, right? Do you? Probably not. But the Spirit always prays according to the will of the Father. And the Father listens to the Spirit inside of us first, answering our real needs instead of the things we may want. The things we may want may very well be real needs, but they also sometimes may be things that are not good for us. Or they may be things that are Yes, but not yet. But the Spirit prays for the things we need and knows the will of the Father. And that is a gift to us as He guides us. And He has our backs like that. And here's the ultimate payoff. The ultimate payoff comes in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Now, that doesn't say that all things work together for good, period. No. It says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And that's a huge comfort to us. That should give our hope a backbone. Now, for us here today, for us here today who love God, who worship Him, who want more of Him in our lives... Everything is working for the good. Do you believe that? 
For those who are here who love God, who want more of Him in our lives, everything is working together for the good. All of your sufferings, all of your troubles, all of your pain, all the crazy things that have happened in your life, they have a purpose. They are being redeemed. Now, it doesn't mean that those things are good in and of themselves. It doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean you have to want to go through them again. It doesn't mean that you can't, um, that, that you have to accept them without question. But it does mean that God is using them for your good, to forge you, to forge your character, and to show His greatness through your life. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 about something you've probably heard of, about his thorn in the flesh. And different people, different scholars believe different things about what that thorn in the flesh might have been. The Bible doesn't say explicitly what it was. And so you might disagree with me. I've spoken about this before, and people disagreed with me and gave me notes about it. But, but um, there are different ways to interpret that. One is this. Um, Paul says he was given this thorn in the flesh by Satan to torment him. Some people, myself included, believe it was something to do with his eyesight. It may have been something else, but, but many think it was something to do with his eyesight. And in his letters, he often would speak about how large his signature was, which makes some think that maybe he had a hard time seeing, and so he wrote this very large signature. All of his letters were dictated to someone else who wrote them, a scribe, which was not unusual for the time, but could have had something to do with him, his in, an inability to, to write in a, a size to write these letters. Uh, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul talks about being sick and how the Galatians loved him so much that they would have given their eyes for him. So that makes some people think this had something to do with his vision. Whatever it was is not really the point, but... This thorn in his flesh, Paul prays to God three times in Scripture to take this away. And how does God respond? God tells Paul this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This awful thing, this thing that frustrated Paul, this thing that maybe made Paul want to just just hang it up and stop proclaiming the goodness of God, God turns it around. God uses it to mold Paul and to glorify himself. And Paul says, again in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul, even with this thorn in his flesh, could glorify God. And and doesn't that tell us something about the kind of God we serve, that he could use a former persecutor of the church with whatever this problem was, this thorn in his flesh, to be the greatest apostle, the greatest champion for Christ? Um, Doesn't that tell you something about God and just what he might do through you? God is not so concerned with how we feel right now as much as He is concerned about who He is shaping us to be. And and He is not primarily about simply healing us from brokenness, but about healing us for newness of life in Christ. Healing us to grow in wisdom and in love. 
And the truth is this, as so many of you already know, that when you begin to deal with God, that all of the junk in your life begins to to come up, and you have to deal with that, the sin in your life. And it's painful, isn't it? To come face to face with your sin, it's kind of like having ongoing surgery going on in your life, and God is using the, the Holy Spirit as a scalpel to do that spiritual surgery on us, and most of the time it feels like He's not using any anesthetic. But nevertheless, we live in hope. And we know and we believe that there is purpose, even in the midst of pain. And God is doing it for our good and for His glory. Yes, the pain is real. But so is the joy of knowing that that even in the crazy difficult times of life, God is working inside of us to mold us and to shape us and to make us more like Christ. And we know that ultimately we will inherit that new heavens and new earth that Jesus is making where there is no more pain and no more suffering and no more sickness and no more death. And we know that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And we groan now. But the glory of God and the the glory of being with Him forever is sufficient to outweigh our longings. We live in hope, hope that is certain of what we do not yet see. The Spirit is speaking on our behalf to the Father. And on those dark days when things don't look promising, and those days do come, keep firm in hope. God will not disappoint us. For God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Believe that. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the one and only God, be all glory and honor forever and ever. Let's pray. Almighty and loving God, we bless and praise you for the gift of your word. And we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard that we would be a people of confident, eager, and patient hope for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, and that we would be a people who would live in ways that honor you above all. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.